Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. This episode was first broadcast in 2018. On this edition, I speak with Toby Walsh about artificial intelligence and the future. Toby Walsh is Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales. I visited his office and began by asking him, You hear a lot about artificial intelligence, autonomous, algorithms. How are these things different? (laughs) Uh, Well, artificial intelligence is trying to make smart algorithms so that we have autonomous machines. There you go, a sentence that's got all of the words in together. Algorithms are the recipes that that run the, uh, the programs in our computers. They're like recipes in the sense that they operate on the ingredients, the ingredients of the data that we give them. Often algorithms aren't very smart. They, are, they don't do very smart things. When we try and get machines, computers to do smart things, then we're bordering into artificial intelligence. It's very hard, though, to define what artificial intelligence is. In fact, most people working in the field have given up trying to define what it is, and we just fall back on some default things, like it's trying to get machines to do things that when humans do them, we say they're intelligent. And one of the good applications of of artificial intelligence of AI is to build machines that will be autonomous, that can actually make their own decisions. Uh, That might be autonomous cars, for example. We're going to see those very shortly on our roads, where the machine is doing the thinking, recognizing the objects on the street, working, making its decision as where to go, um, so that it can drive autonomously. And that's going to be an interesting transition, isn't it? Because there's going to be a time when there's people on the road with the machines and the machines won't act the way the people expect. Will the people act the way the machines expect? Wonderful question. Yes, well, the challenging part will be the chan- the transition when we've got a mixture of, of humans and machines doing the driving. When it's only the machines driving, actually, that's going to be very easy because the machines will just talk to each other with radio, uh, V2V, vehicle-to-vehicle communication, and they'll be able to agree, you know, I'm going to go through. In fact, we won't need traffic lights probably then anymore because uh, the cars will just agree who's going to go next through the intersection. It will all be done seamlessly. So the challenging point will be the transition as we have a mixture of humans who drive perhaps a bit more erratically than the machines do. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm very concerned. Um, and the other road users, I'm, I'm very concerned as a cyclist that I'm maybe not as visible as other people, especially um, to, to com- autonomous cars. Um, so we do have to worry about the transition. But it's worth pointing out the endpoint's going to be fantastic. The endpoint is one where we have a thousand people die on the roads of Australia every year in road traffic accidents, more than 95% of those accidents caused by the driver. And so we're not going to have those accident rates anymore once we have autonomous cars. Uh, we're going to look back and it's going to look like the Wild West. We're going to wonder how we put up with this carnage on our, on our streets. Um, that's great you know, financial burden. It's a, it's a billion-dollar problem. Each of those, each of those uh, uh, road traffic accidents cost a a million dollars to deal with. And so times a thousand, that's a billion dollars. Plus all the you know immense personal tragedies that are associated with those accidents. 
sadly most of us have known someone in our immediate circle who who has died in a road traffic accident it's one of the major causes of death for men men under the age of 35 uh, it is something that we will look back as a society and wonder how we put up with it um, and when we have autonomous cars we won't have to put up with it it will it will be a much brighter future and it will give mobility to to young people, to elderly people, to handicapped people. So it will be very liberating. It will open up our cities. It will change completely the nature of our transportation. And there was a study done for, for Lisbon, and they worked out you could do the transport of Lisbon with autonomous cars if you had one-tenth of the cars. Because most of the time, a car's not doing anything. It's 90% of the time it's sitting, parking on the side of the road, rusting slowly. Uh, it's waiting for you, waiting to do your next uh, activity. Uh, and so it has to wait there. Whereas if it was autonomous, it could go off and do something. It could go and earn you money as a taxi. Uh, it wouldn't have to be uh, parked there, actually making the road smaller because it's occupying space on the road. So our roads would be opened up. We wouldn't need all these parking spaces. Our cars could be much more useful and productive. Uh, so it will transform our cityscape. This is one of the interesting things with technology is all the, all the secondary consequences. You can see the immediate, the, the primary consequences, but it's the, the secondary consequences, how that will impact upon the nature of work will be perhaps more willing to commute further because cars will become offices. Actually, the time you spend, the hour you spend getting to your office in the morning will be actually productive time. You can answer all your emails. That's going to have a knock-on effect perhaps to real estate prices out in the country. Um, that's going to change the nature of, of uh, realtors' jobs uh, in, in the country. So it's all of these interesting uh, secondary effects that people don't necessarily realise immediately when they see the technologies coming. At the moment, there's a push to put internet on everything. The internet of things is, is a big rising thing. Are we going to have an artificial intelligence of things where it's like electricity, you add it to everything in your life to make it better? It is going to be added to everything. Actually, artificial intelligence is the operating system of all of these devices. Uh, you're going to, everything is, as you say, is going to be connected to the internet and it's going to be sending and harvesting data. Uh, your light bulb, your front door, uh, your fridge, your oven, your desk, your vase with the flowers in it on, on the table, they're all going to be internet enabled. But the, what's the interface going to be? They're not going to have keyboards and screens. Most of these devices, no, they're not going to. They're going to, so the only interface you're going to have is voice. They're going to have a little microphone and they will be able to listen to you and you'll say, lights on. And you'll walk into a room and you'll say, who won the footy last night? The room will recognize who you are, biometrically identify who you are. It will look up your preferences, know which team you support, will find the result and then will speak back to you and tell you who won the footy. So it's going to be like that. And it's going to be a conversation that follows you. It's going to be a lifelong conversation. Doesn't It won't, it won't be just one conversation in one room. You walk out of the room, walk into the next room, get into your car and continue the conversation. And that new device, that new room, that new car will work out who you are and will know all about you. How do you think this applies when it's not just consumer products, but governments wanting to automate decisions? Yes, it's going to be interesting and somewhat challenging it is we have to worry about these sort of 1984-ish aspects of these things that that all of this data is going to be harvested about us it's going to be it's going to be convenience certainly we're going to be tempted to, to want to use all of these devices connect them all together allow these services to, to to know all about us because it's going to make our lives so convenient the challenge is the misuse you can do with that data 
The challenge, actually, one of the challenges is not just that governments do it. At the moment, we're giving all this data to private corporations, and private corporations are less answerable in some respects than governments. At least governments, you have to keep on re-electing, and they have to appeal to the, their electorate, whereas corporations don't. They don't have to appeal to you at all. They can do with that data whatever they choose. They can sell it to whoever they like, as they sometimes do. So actually, I'm more worried that we'll wake up in a sort of 1984 world in which it's not the government that's listening on everything it's it's actually cor private corporations we are actually starting this this brave new world in some respects already you're paying money to go and buy an alexa which or, a, or some uh, intelligent speaker in your home you're paying good money for a device that's constantly listening constantly monitoring you and you don't own that data that data is owned by amazon or apple or whoever is running the service so it's going to be a, you know, it's a very interesting world that we're turning into. And we should think carefully through the consequences and carefully through what sort of world do we want to wake up in? Do we actually really want to wake up in this 1984-ish world? Or should we put some, perhaps put some safeguards in place to ensure that, you know, data about you is, is owned by you and not by corporations, not by, not by governments? There's already advertising from Amazon suggesting you should give Alexa your bank details so it can make purchases on your behalf. Yes, and there are stories about, uh, about, about Alexa buying things accidentally that some child in the house has mentioned that they'd like uh, a doll's house and suddenly a doll's house arrives on the doorstep delivered next day by Amazon Prime. So yes, we should be very careful about these things. The, the privacy of, of Alexa, you can ask Alexa questions about yourself other people are in your house sometimes and they could ask your Alexa questions about you, about your diary, about your bank accounts and all these sorts of things. So we should be very careful about how this is going to impact upon our privacy. And we have to remember that technology is a strange intruder. It's not inevitable. It's not something that we have to let into our lives, whatever. It's not something that's fixed. We get to make the choices as to what is let into our lives and how we let it into our lives and what what, uh, what rights we give it, what abilities we give it, and whether you know, some things are not necessarily desirable. And is that the topic of your book? So, yes, I did just write a book. It's called It's Alive, Artificial Intelligence from the Logic Piano to Killer Robots, to talk about some of these questions. The, the, the book tries to set the scene by, by explaining what artificial intelligence is, where, where it came from. It goes, goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks and talks about, about how we've had this dream for thousands of years now about, about mechanizing thought and also about understanding our own thought. It is an interesting subject in that sense. The book also talks about what we can do today. If you, if you believed everything you read in the newspapers, then you th might already believe that we already have artificial intelligence. We don't. We're still quite a way away from building machines that are as intelligent as humans. And I think most of my colleagues take, was estimate it will take at least 50 more years before that happens. And maybe even longer, or maybe even never. We don't actually know. It's a, it's a scientific pursuit. But I don't have any expectation that we won't eventually be able to build machines that are as smart as us. There's nothing I can see that's particularly special about our biology, but even so, it's going to be a challenge. It's not an easy task. It took us millions of years of evolution to get where we are today to be as smart as we are, so it's not going to be something that's going to be easy to engineer overnight. It's still, still quite some significant challenges. We can, however, though, already build machines that are better than us at narrow-focused tasks. If you like, uh, we can build a machine that can play Go or chess better than any human. 
we can build a machine that can read x-rays more accurately, quicker, cheaper than a human can. We can build machines that can do narrow focus tasks, but nothing that approaches the breadth of ability of a human. I still have immense respect for our human intelligence. The brain is, of course, the most complex system we know of in the universe. Nothing approaches its complexity. The, the billions of neurons, the trillions of connections, it is a, you know, a remarkable machine that allows us for better or worse, to have dominated the planet. We are, we are the dominant species on the planet because we're the smartest. We're not the fastest. We're not the strongest. Uh, we don't have the sharpest teeth. We just happen to have the, the smartest brain. And that's really important to our existence. In fact, it's in our name. We're Homo sapiens. We're the smart species. That's maybe a bit self-centered to have named ourselves that, but it is true. We are smart. That's how we got to be on running the planet and, and for... We're not necessarily running it in necessarily the best way, but, but we are nevertheless the dominant species and the other, other things on the planet have to adapt to what we'd say. So it's going to be a very interesting future when we are no longer the smartest thing on the planet, when we've built machines that might be smarter than us. Because there's no reason to suppose if we can build machines that are as smart as us, that those machines can't be any smarter than us. As it would be rather self-centered to suppose that we were the limit of intelligence. In fact, the history of science is one that wherever we've put ourselves on a pedestal, we've been wrong. The sun did not go around the earth. The earth went around the sun. We were no genetically no different than the apes. We were, you know, Darwin and, and Copernicus taught us that if we tried to think we were somewhat more special than we were, we were wrong. And so I think if we think there's something special about our intelligence, that it can't be matched and perhaps even exceeded in silicon again will prove to be wrong and machines have lots of advantages than us they are faster than us they they can have more memory than us we are constrained by what can fit in our skull we are constrained by the limits of the 20 watts of power that our body can provide um you know, our brain interesting enough uses the most energy of any organ in our body this is more energy than your heart uh, we devote a huge amount of our bodily resources to running our brain um, and then we have to rest at night because, we've, because, we've, because of that. Because it gives us a great evolutionary advantage. But we're limited, in our, we're limited to those 20 watts of power. With computers, though, we're not limited at all. We can, we, we can tap into almost uh, unbounded amounts of power, unbounded amounts of memory. And they have lots of other advantages. They'll never need to forget things. I mean, the interesting question is, you know, some people say actually forgetting things might be useful. It helps us to, to, to not to be dis distracted by, by clutter in our lives. Well, it's very easy to write a program to forget things as well. So for, if forgetting is important, we can write programs to forget as well. So um, there are, at any rate, there are a number of natural advantages that machines will have that suggest, just as with narrow focus tasks, they haven't stopped at human level, that with general intelligence, they won't stop with human level intelligence. So we won't in 50 or 100 years' time, perhaps be the smartest thing on the planet. That's hopefully going to be a nice, humbling moment for mankind. Hopefully we'll start treating the planet a bit better, a bit kinder than we have in the past. But it's going to be an amazing resource to tap into. We just think if we can make so much better decisions, it will actually help us deal with things like climate change and diminishing resources and some of the many challenging problems. We'll be able to make better decisions, better uses of our resources by, by tapping into these machines that can make smarter decisions than we can. So it's going to be an interesting future. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet 
on www.diffusionradio.com. Where nothing, nothing can possibly go wrong. Go wrong. Raw. Go wrong. Oh my God. Shut down. Shut down immediately. Is that an existential threat for humans that we need to make sure that the first machines that can think uh, have a, a system of ethics already in place? We do have to worry about the, the values, the ethics we put into our machines. I'm not particularly concerned that, that the machines are going to be an existential threat, a threat to the very existence of, of mankind. We can't completely dismiss the idea. And I should say, point out, most of my colleagues working in AI are also not too overly concerned about the existential threat of, of, of the machines taking over. The people who do tend to worry most about it are people like philosophers like Nick Bostrom and, and technologists like, like uh, uh, Elon Musk, who I have a lot of respect for Elon Musk, who's a great engineer, but he's not an AI researcher. He doesn't perhaps understand some of the challenges we're going to have to actually build machines like that. So it's not something, though, that we can dismiss. Like in all of science, unless there's some fundamental reason why it can't happen. You have to entertain the possibility. Just as when they invented the nuclear bomb, they entertained the possibility that the whole Earth's atmosphere was going to be set alight by this amazing amount of energy released in the first nuclear explosion. They did the calculation to prove that that wasn't probably going to happen. Equally, when they turned on the Large Hadron Collider, they did the calculation to work out the probability that it wasn't going to set off a black hole that was going to swallow the world. So we do, we should entertain these possibilities. We, there is a very small but non-zero possibility that you know, the machines could decide to take over. I'm much more worried, though, that we're giving responsibility to stupid machines at the start. We're already starting to do that, and they may not be given the right values. They may not have the right values, and that increasingly we're seeing machines being used to decide sentencing in courts. We're using machines to decide who gets credit we're using machines to decide who gets uh, welfare payments. These are really important decisions, and maybe the machines have implicit or explicit biases that we're not aware of or not aware of. And we should be very careful about handing over these sorts of decisions to machines, unless we're very confident that the machines are doing it in a fair way, in an unbiased way, in a way that, that respects the sorts of human values that are important to us. So is the, the near danger, really, of people misunderstanding simple algorithmic decision-making machines for very smart artificial intelligence systems that we haven't actually invented yet and then trusting them too soon? We do tend to trust machines too soon. There are lots of examples of this. In fact, Joshua Brown, the first person killed by an autonomous car, has learned to his cost that he trusted the machine too much. He was driving down the highway in Florida just over a year ago in his autonomous Tesla, well, semi-autonomous Tesla. It was on its supposed autopilot mode driving itself. He was supposed to be paying attention to the road. He was supposed to have his hands on the wheels. He wasn't. By some accounts, he was watching a Harry Potter movie. But whatever it was, he didn't see the truck that was turning across the road, the white truck against the white sky, and the Tesla didn't see the truck turning across the road. It thought it was a signpost above the road, not, not a truck. And it drove at over 70 miles an hour into the truck, killing him instantly. Interesting question about that. Not only was, was the, uh, the, the Tesla driving autonomously, it was actually speeding. It's not clear why the Tesla thought it should be allowed to speed, but at any rate, uh, he did believe in the technology too much. He became overly confident. We do tend, after a while, if a machine does something well, 
a few times we tend to think, well, oh, it's as good as a human at driving, and it's not. And a Tesla has still got some way to go before we can trust it with our lives. What sort of things do you think artificial intelligence will enable us to do that we can't do now? It's hard to think of what AI is not going to be able to do. Um, if you have a machine that is intelligent as us and a machine that maybe is even more intelligent than us, then it can presumably do anything that we can do. So I think perhaps more it's more a question of what do we not want the machines to do? It's a question of there are some things that we just prefer humans to do. We'll prefer humans to write novels because they will speak to the human condition and maybe a, a machine will eventually be able to write a novel as well as a human but it won't be something that we can relate to because it won't have our mortality it won't fall in love like us and so we'll prefer a novel written by a human or a, a play or, a, or some music composed by a human equally we'll prefer some sculpture some wooden sculpture carved by a human because we'll be able to see the human touch to it and we'll value that another human had made this rather than the machine that had made it with even if though the machine could make it more perfectly equally in things like healthcare, we'll probably prefer to have a doctor tell us the bad news to put a hand on our shoulder and say toby i'm afraid i've got bad news it's inoperable cancer i'm afraid you're going to die then have a machine tell us those things because we know the doctor himself is mortal and, and or herself is mortal and 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 that these will be things where we relate because you know at the end of the day we are social animals the most important thing to us is our society and the, the we will appreciate the the, the societal the, uh, and machines don't have much emotional intelligence today maybe they will have greater emotional intelligence in the future we'll, we'll certainly tr teach them to understand us or our emotions a bit better and maybe they'll have fake emotions or perhaps even real emotions we don't know what enough about emotions to know what they will be but we'll prefer interacting with people because we are people people at the end of the day and we'll prefer those those social interactions than we will interacting with with uh, machines We've talked a lot about the risks, and I always like to remind people of the benefits, that the reason that we're doing this, not only is because it provides amazing insight, perhaps, into our own brains, but, but also because it's going to provide amazing benefits. If we, we make the right choices, it's a technology that's, like most technologies, is pretty neutral. It can be used for good or for bad. And we face immense challenges today. We face climate change, the ongoing, perhaps never-ending financial crisis. We face a global refugee problem, growing inequality within our society. Many, many problems are stressing our planet today. And we almost have no answers to these problems other than technology and other than what we've done in the past, which is invest in technology. It's about the only hand of cards we get to play. The reason we live much better quality lives than our grandparents is because we did invest in technology. And the only hope for our grandchildren is if, the, if we again embrace the technology and make sure that we use it in good ways. Well, Toby Walsh, thank you very much. It was my pleasure talking to you. And that was Professor Toby Walsh talking about artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales. You can read more in Toby's latest book, It's Alive. Well, if the computer is this important, why haven't I heard more about it? Well, the computer is a relatively new thing, and we're just really getting an appreciation for the full range of its usefulness. Many people think it's going to spark a revolution that will change the face of the earth almost as much as the first industrial revolution did. Can machines think? I mean by that uh, thinking, uh, that process we try to avoid when we have a problem to solve. The conception of the robot, a thinking machine, 
has been man's dream for centuries, also his nightmare. I'm convinced that machines can and will think. I don't mean that machines will behave like men. I don't think for a very long time we're going to have a difficult problem distinguishing a man from a robot. And I don't think my daughter will ever marry a computer. But I think that computers will be doing the things that men do when we say they're thinking. I'm convinced that machines can and will think in our lifetime. I confidently expect that within a matter of 10 or 15 years, something will emerge from the laboratories which is not too far from the robot of science fiction fame. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone, or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show so that I can make more episodes. Sound check by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RVM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and seven LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, then you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. I'm currently archiving a whole lot of shows from around 2000 to 2006 that were recorded on Minidisc. Stay tuned to hear some of those. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.